All right, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 again. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that last song we just sang was absolutely perfect for the message. So I hope you were paying attention to it as you were singing it. There once was a man who spent a third of his life believing that he was something special. Uh, he uh, was raised by royalty. He uh, was educated by the best. He probably was a military uh, hero at that time, at least according to tradition. Uh, but the Lord wouldn't use him because he thought so highly of himself. So the Lord took him for the next third of his life and put him on the backside of a wilderness where his uh, deepest conversation had to do with uh, sheep and talking to sheep. And after 40 years of doing that, and the Lord has got his attention that he wasn't somebody particularly special, the Lord was ready to use him. And so he brought him back for the last 40 years of his life to uh, minister in a powerful way such as few people have ever been used by God. Of course, you know that's Moses that I'm talking about. Uh, the Lord needed to, to do something radical, radical in the life of Moses before he was in a position to be used by God, and that radicalness had to do with humility. The uh, pride has always been a great problem for humanity. It's part of our sinful DNA. It's, uh, it's a root of, at the root of so many of our sins. Uh, pride is just everywhere wrapped around us and within us. And as a result of that, uh, it causes problems. Now at the church at Corinth, as we've seen in chapter 1, uh, it was causing divisions in the church. The church was divided over people that were arrogant and proud, boasting about one leader or the other. They also were quite impressed with themselves trying to compete with the, the sophisticated Greek intellectuals of their day and be able, able to, to look good before them and be able to argue uh, things with them. And uh, as Paul comes out in this first chapter, he is showing them that uh, they're not all that they think they are. They need to be in a position where God would be able to use them as he should. Verse 25 is where we'll start real quickly. It says, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Uh, we want to start out then by looking at the context. We're looking at the wisdom of God. Uh, which is, uh, is, is wiser than anything man could ever come up with. Even his foolishness would be wiser than that. His weakness is stronger than anything man can do. And so we find the wisdom of God is that our, uh, our topic today. We look at verses 26 on down to chapter 2, at least verse 5, maybe further than that. And he's talking then about the wisdom and the power of God. We need to know that. We need to have a handle on the wisdom and the power of God if we're ever going to be what God would have us be. Paul demonstrates that wisdom then in a lot of ways, but in verses 26 to 31, where we'll be today, uh, he, he's going to expand on those thoughts of the wisdom and the power of God in ways that maybe we're not expecting. We read over these verses often very quickly. We nod our head in approval, and then we don't look at the depths of what's here. I hope to take us pretty deep today and looking at some of those types of things. When I look at this text of scripture, it comes to my mind three questions. And I'm going to uh, attempt to answer those three questions from scripture today, and I trust you'll be asking the same questions as we go through. First of all, what, what has God not done? Sometimes, it's in order to understand the positive, we need to look at the negative. So we'll start with that. What has God not done? Verse 26 says this, For consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Now we start with the word consider. That means ponder. Think about it. So let me ask you to think about it for a moment. When was the last time you sat down for five minutes and thought about your, your calling from Christ? That the Lord has called you to be his own. 
to actually ponder that, consider that, and to, and to uh, just glory in that. I mean, why me? Have you ever thought that way? Why in the world did God choose me? And as we look at our text today, we're not going to be flattered as to why he chose us, but that's the question. He says, consider your calling. And look at, at what he has to say then. He says, there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many strong, that he called to be with himself, or not many noble, as he says in verse 26. In other words, God didn't choose the, the, the brilliant, he didn't choose the wise, he didn't choose the powerful, he didn't choose the connected people. Matter of fact, the first century Christians, most of them were slaves or ex-slaves or poor class uh, workers. There wasn't a lot of noble people. There wasn't a lot of wealthy people as part of that. And so, and this was a standing reproach of the Corinthians, it seems to be. The Corinthians wanted to stand out in their community as people that could kind of go toe-to-toe with the sophisticated intellectuals in the Greek society. Uh, and yet the Greeks would look at them, the, the, the smart people, the intellectuals, and say, well, no wonder you people receive Christ or believe that message about Jesus Christ. I mean, after all, you're, you're, in, you're, you're uneducated. You're ignorant. Uh, you, you lack sophistication. And that's why you're buying into this fad. The, the smart people aren't. The intellectuals aren't. The wealthy people aren't. The nobles aren't. It's you that are doing that. And that really stung. Uh, the Corinthians. It stings us, doesn't it? When you go on the media, whatever that media might be that you go on, and you find people making fun of Christians and lumping all Christians into one pot and calling them ignorant and stupid and, and uh, whatever else they want to call us, uh, bigoted and racist and everything else they want to throw at us, doesn't that sting? Don't you want to stand up and say, no, we're not. Here's what we are. Well, the Corinthians were really battling that type of thing. And yet, we find that Paul is saying that the very things which, which elevate the status of people and impress the world do not impress God. And that's the essence of what he's saying here. Knowledge, uh, influence, rank, finances, they do not impress God. And that was humbling to realize that. That's humiliating to realize that. Isn't it something how God... God's thing is so contrary to our own. Uh, we are drawn towards the beautiful, towards the powerful, towards the clever, towards the exceptional, towards the rich and the famous. Uh, some of us, uh, are, most of us are not like that, right? Uh, most of us uh, are, are in a very different world. Some of us went to school for two semesters before the teachers knew our names. Uh, I heard one pastor of a mega church years ago who said, I know two kinds of people in this church. The uh, troublemakers and the kooks. All right, everybody else, I don't know them. That's a huge church, right? So if you weren't, you know, if you weren't an oddball or if you weren't a troublemaker, people might not even know who you were. Sometimes, that's not unusual. George Orwell, the uh, futurist and novelist, said, "All people are equal, but some people are more equal than others," and that's our experience, isn't it? So what a relief it is to learn that God is not impressed with any of the things that impress us that he chooses the very thing that most of us would look down on and despise. So there we are. There's where we start. There's where we start. So now, second question is this. What has God done? We know what he has not done. Uh, what has he done? 
And in verse 27, he says this, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things which are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. What has God done? Well, we see in this passage of Scripture that, that Paul is going to identify three types of people that God has chosen. So let's look at these together. First of all, he has chosen the foolish in contrast to the wise. Now he's thinking here of wisdom in relationship to the world, how the world sees wisdom, how the world uh, computes wisdom, wise people, smart people, intellectual people. And he says here that God has chosen not those people primarily. Now, of course, there are some of those, but primarily not. Instead, he says, I have chosen the foolish to contra in contrast to the wise. In our, in our translation here, it's a little confusing because the translators add the words things after the word foolish. And the word is just, there's just one word here. It's, it's the word we've looked at before. It's word, we get our word moronic. So it's just one word. He's not talking about things. He's talking about people. And he's saying God has chosen those who are intellectually inferior to some of the great thinkers of our world. Now that hurts. So some of you are sitting right there grip, gripping your Bible saying, I, that can't be, I'm smart. And maybe you are. I'm not going to say none of us are smart and nobody here is smart. But you know what? A lot of people are pretty common, pretty normal. You know, some of you think higher math is balancing your checkbook. Now, some of you have your most sophisticated thoughts after reading The Far Side or Dilbert. Uh, some of you think that uh, would consider yourself intellectuals if you read a couple books a year. Uh, some of you couldn't turn on your television without, without the help of an eight-year-old if you had to. You know, I, the great thinkers, now I'm, not, I'm just being kind of funny here, but the great thinkers of the world have seldom accepted the gospel. And that's true today, it was true then, it's been true throughout most of church history. Why? Why is it the great intellectuals have not come to Christ? Now we could give a whole bunch of reasons, we could line them up. But here's the one that Paul gives in verse 27. Because God has chosen someone else. We're looking now at the sovereignty of God. We're looking at the sovereign purposes of God, the sovereign uh, function, strategy of God. And it says here that God has chosen, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Why has he done that? Well, we're told here that he has chosen them to shame the wise. The world of wisdom, human wisdom, is built on a bubble. That bubble periodically bursts. And the life that people are living for is revealed for what it is. We see that all the time. Uh, we read about it in newspapers or, or in our media feeds all the time. Somebody with great money, great wealth, great sophistication, great influence falls apart. And their bubble bursts and their wisdom falls apart. That's a common thing. It happens. Scripture tells us one day it's going to happen big time. In Revelation chapter 12, we find, and if you're listening to our morning broadcast, 
Uh, next week we'll get to that and we'll go through that text of scripture but in Roman, Revelation chapter 12 we find just before the return of Christ that the whole economic world collapses and people mourn and they grieve because everything they have lived for has collapsed with it and they have nothing left because everything they thought in their wisdom they thought they could trust in is gone. That's the big picture. But in miniature, it happens all the time. Most of you probably saw a couple of weeks ago that some guy I'd, none of us had ever heard of before. I think his name is Bill Wang or something like that. He had built an empire, financial empire, upon other people's monies. He had billions of dollars in this empire. And in two days, he lost $20 billion and took down a lot of other organizations with him. His bubble had burst. He was revealed for what he was. That miniature that happens every day. Ultimately, it happens to the whole world. And the Lord tells us here that he has chosen the foolish because he wants to shame the wise. He is going to reveal to the wise or those who think they're wise that their bubble is going to burst. And he does that by calling out people that the world thinks is foolish. Now, secondly, we have the, the weak who are in contrast to the strong. And then let's just move on. And now the base, verse 28 and the base things of the world, and to despise God has chosen. And notice the progression on down. We've gone from the weak to the strong, the base to the despised, or uh, uh, God has chosen. The things which, now look, look, one more step. The things which are not, that he may nullify the things that are. And again, he's not talking about uh, material things. He's talking about people. So he's gotten down at this point to the place where we're talking about nobodies. He's talking about people that are inconsequential. He's talking about people that the world doesn't take notice of at all. That to them, they're nobodies. And God has chosen them. Interesting thing, isn't it? You know, uh, probably there's nothing more painful than being absolutely ignored. Uh, it's it not even be noticed enough to be hated. That's a kind of a painful thing. These are people that are not as far as the world is concerned. When I was in the fifth grade, uh, the, uh, there was a little girl in our class who had a birthday party, and she invited everybody in the class to her house for the birthday party. I was, I was flattered in a sense that I, uh, I didn't really think I was very close to this girl, and, and she invited me over. Of course, she invited 29 others along with me, so at least I got in the club. But I, when I got there, there was one guy missing, Eddie. I, I asked him, where's Eddie? Oh, he didn't get invited we didn't invite Eddie. He, you know, and I, I hurt for Eddie that day. I was thinking in my little fi fifth grade mind how painful that had to be for Eddie. You see, Eddie was that kid that nobody wanted to talk to. Every class probably has somebody like that. Every system has somebody that nobody really wants to be around, nobody wants to have lunch with, nobody wants to sit with, nobody cares about. And Eddie was our fifth grade nobody. And I thought the next, when we came back to school the next day, poor Eddie. He's going to know that 29 other kids went to a party he didn't get even invited to. How's Eddie going to feel? What's that going to do in Eddie's life? And I thought about him. I thought about him often over the years, the Eddies of this world. I don't know how Eddie turned out. I hope he's a multimillionaire in charge of half those people. You know, <laughs> I hope even more so that he came to Jesus Christ and he's one of the nobodies God called. But you see, the world's filled with Eddies. There's a lot more Eddies than there are Bill Gateses. There's an awful lot of people that nobody pays much attention to, but God. 
Now, I don't know if that encourages you today because you think you're pretty high and mighty or pretty smart. Maybe you are, but not before God you're not. And isn't it a wonderful thing that the Lord said, look, I'm going to choose people that nobody else wants. I'm going to choose a world of eddies because I am Almighty God and I'm going to show my power to people that others despise. I think it's profound. I think it's something we don't think about much. This passage sure brings it to our attention, doesn't it? As it should. Some years ago when I was in high school, uh, a, a man, probably the most idolized man on the planet at that time, said these words. I'll never forget them. He said, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I am right. I will be proven right. We're more popular than Jesus now. Remember who that was? John Lennon and the Beatles. John Lennon's gone, folks. The Beatles have long since gone, and all that they stood for will one day be gone. But Jesus Christ and his eddies will stand. His people will stand. Because God has chosen them. And keep in mind, that's the point. God has chosen them. And he doesn't do it because of status. He doesn't do it because we're powerful, wealthy, brilliant. He does it because of the sovereign purposes of himself. That is humbling. That could even make some people angry. But God doesn't care that that angers us. It might catch our attention and draw us to the truth that the sovereign God does what the sovereign God chooses to do. And he's chosen the people he chooses to choose. Now, one more question, why God has done what he's done. Quite frankly, verses 29 to 31 does not need to be here. Quite frankly, God knows us, owes us no explanation for anything he does, does he? When I want to stand up and say, God, why? Why this? Why that? He doesn't owe me an explanation. He doesn't have to say, okay, Gary, let me explain to you what I'm doing. I hope you like it. He owes me nothing. He is sovereign, almighty God. But according to his graciousness here, he gives us some answers. Why has God done what God has done in this way? Why has he chosen the weak and the foolish? Does he simply like to surround himself with little people? Does he enjoy putting down big shots? I don't think that's the answer we have here. Um, Instead, we find that God explains why he does what he does in three parts. First of all, the motive. Verse 29, the motive. So then, so that no man may boast before God. There's the motive. So no one can boast before God. If I could stand up and say, well, I've been chosen. Oh, of course I've been chosen. I'm smart. You know, I'm six foot eight. I see, now you know that's a myth, right? Okay. I, people that are watching by video or whatever today, I don't know that I'm, I've been told you sound taller on radio, you know, so those are out there, and I got an email this morning from a gal in Wheaton, who told me something I was going to tell you, she thinks I'm 6'8", thank you Marilyn, Um, did you know that today the diet of worms, now you don't know what that is, lunch, diet of worms, that's where Martin Luther, 500 years ago today, stood up and said, 
to the, to the Roman Catholic world that had challenged what he was doing and saying, he said, and wanting him to stand down, he said, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. 500 years ago today. And may that still be our testimony. So Marilyn, wherever you are, thank you for that uh, email, and I'm only 5'5". Five five. <laughs> and going down. Uh, okay, I'm off page, I'm sorry. Let's go back to the motive, that no one can boast before God. Secondly, the method. The motive's pretty simple. God is not impressed with what we do and who we are. God is God. And no one is going to stand before him and boast before him. The method, verse 30. By, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We who have for the most part very little of this world's wisdom because of God's grace have received God's wisdom. And how? Now this is, this is kind of profound, so I want you to buckle down for a moment. This is invaluable stuff, powerful stuff. But you're going to have to stay with me to get it. Notice how we get the wisdom of God. The one simple thing, but it's profound. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. The word in is the key. It means we, if we are united with Christ Jesus, we have the wisdom of God that he's talking about here. And without that unity with Christ, that uniting with Christ, I don't care how smart you are, how many PhDs you have, how, how many accolades you get in the world, you do not have the wisdom of God. And so unity, union with Christ, is everything. As we look at the verse, in the New American Standard that we use here most of the time, uh, it's a little confusing. So I want to unconfuse it if I can. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, comma, who became to us wisdom from God, comma, so if you'll follow it closely, you'll see it. Then he goes on to say, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, no commas. So you get it there, but the New International actually in this case, when I don't like it as New International near as much, but sometimes they get it right, and they did it well here. More clarity, let me read it to you. It says, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, Christ Jesus has become wisdom from God, that is, comma, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. In other words, he says, you have wisdom because you are in Christ. Then he unpacks what that wisdom is. What does it look like? What's the ingredients of that wisdom? And he says, those are... The three ingredients are righteousness and holiness and redemption. And quite frankly, at first blush, even at, at quite a bit of reading, that doesn't seem to make sense. In what sense are, are righteousness and holiness or sanctification and redemption? In what sense is that the wisdom of Christ? Now, now he is being very detailed here. He's being very systematic. This is no accident. He used those three terms. So let's take a look at what these three facets of Christ's wisdom is, what he's offering us. First of all, he's offering us righteousness. When we, when we are in Christ, we have his righteousness or justification. And 
That goes back to the word wisdom in verse 26. Do you want to be wise? Do you want to know what life is all about? Do you want to know how to live life as God would have you live life? Then you must start with the righteousness of God. You must have the righteousness that is found only in Christ Jesus. The Greek intellectuals love to get together and discuss the different philosophies of life. Almost everybody had a different idea about life and philosophies, and they loved to talk about it. If they were alive today, they would light up Twitter. Always throwing something out there, just like the Twitterites do today. Is that the right word? But sin's, sin blinds us to truth and the truth of God. It turns God's truth into a lie and makes a lie into a truth. So the unsaved lived in a world of shadows and lies and therefore they are constantly pooling ignorance as far as God is concerned. Therefore, he says this, the solution to that. Now remember, we're not talking about scientific, mathematic, whatever kinds of wisdom or, or, in, or knowledge that, that has value. We're talking about wisdom for life. How to truly live life. And he's saying here the answer to that is found in nothing less than the righteousness of Christ. God's righteousness sets us free from sin. God's righteousness makes us right before God. God's righteousness, as we'll see later on in chapter 2, gives us the mind of Christ. God's righteousness is centered on the will of God, not around us. Second ingredient sanctification. Do you want to know power? Or do you want power? Do you want to be, verse 26, mighty? There's not many mighty that he called, but there is a, a mightiness, a powerfulness found in sanctification. Sanctification is, is, is that word that we used in progressive sanctification to speak about our growing in Christ, our maturity in Christ. You see, the wisdom of the world corrupts. Now, again, I might get some pushback from that. Does the, wisdom ever, does the world ever come up with anything worth talking about? I think so. But ultimately, the wisdom of the world, devoid of the wisdom of God, corrupts. It pollutes. It sends us off in wrong tangents. But the wisdom of God doesn't do that. The wisdom of God brings us back to the word of God and the truth of God and to live life as God plan for it to be. Now I know sanctification, progressive growth in Christ, is a slow process. Everybody who's been saved here over six weeks knows that. It, it takes a lifetime, and we're never there. I, I heard of two, guy, two, two uh, Christians walking down the road, and one of them said, I'm so glad that God knows that we are, uh, our state, our weaknesses, that we're made of dust. And his other friend said, yes, but sometimes we're a little dustier than we need to be. I think that's a good thing to think about. Don't just settle back and say, ah, I'm weak. I have feet of clay. I'm made of dust. Hey, progress. And he says here that the wisdom of Christ is made up of sanctification. That means that it is made up of that which shows us how to progress in him. And therefore, while the wisdom of the world corrupts, 
The wisdom of God transforms. It transforms. And it should be transforming every one of our lives ever so slowly, but it's transforming. The third word is redemption. It goes back to the word noble. Do you want to be noble? Do you want to be in a high class? Do you want the world to, uh, uh, the world, well, let's think of the world. The world likes pedigree, doesn't it? Millions and millions of people turned into a funeral for a 99-year-old prince yesterday who, as far as I know, has never done anything except stand by the queen. Might have been a decent man. I don't know. But why did the world turn in to watch that guy's funeral? Because he's royalty. The world likes that kind of thing. It's, a, it's the pedigree they're after. God doesn't care. Every king who has ever lived will bow before Almighty God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's not impressed with that, nor should he be. Yet, you and I, just the little people that God saves, whatever status we might be there, through redemption, have joined, joined a royal family. We have become royalty. You ever thought about that? You are in the family of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are, you're not just noble, you're royalty. You're, you're part of the family of God. You've joined that. And redemption did that because redemption, the, the word itself means we've been taken from the slave market of sin and brought into the family of God, set free to be with Him, to live with Him. And so therefore, redemption is part of the wisdom of God. How do you obtain real wisdom and power and no, no, uh, nobility? Not through the world's wisdom, it'll never happen, but only through the wisdom that is found in our union with Jesus Christ. Real wisdom has to do with salvation through Christ Jesus. Why has God done what he's done? We've seen the motive. We've seen the method. Finally, let's see the practical result. What is the result? Verse 31, very simple verse. So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Okay, this has been a fairly intense sermon. So some of you are probably ready for lunch or something. Uh, you're, get, you're kind of settling into your seat. Not for a good snooze for this last few minutes. Okay, I'm going to let you breathe. Take a breather and come back. I, got, I want to wrap this up. And I want to take you to, to a height that maybe you have not expected in the scriptures today. And that one little verse is verse 31. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Well, how profound could that be? What we have to do now is back up and see why did Paul say that. We've been in the forest, among the trees, and all the details. We're going to go out now, take a look at the forest. We're going to look at the big context. What started this tangent that Paul has gone off on? It started with two things in chapter 1, with a division that is found among these Christians who were boasting about men instead of God, and secondly, their desire to be sophisticated enough to impress the Greeks. That was the two issues. Both wrapped around self. Themselves. So in reply to those problems, Paul has, has taken us and he's pointed away from people, even the apostles that he brought up earlier. 
and he's pointed straight to the God-man Jesus Christ. And he points them away from the philosophies of the world and straight to the foolishness of the wisdom of God. And then he shows them or reveals to them themselves. And he says, not many of you are wise that I've chosen to make righteous. Not many of you are mighty that I've chosen to give power in the sanctification process. Not many of you are noble that I've chosen to bring into my royal family. Why has God done all of this? Now here we are at the end. Why has God done all of this? So that we might see the power and the wisdom of God as opposed to the power and the wisdom of the world and that all of our boasting is to be in the Lord and not in self. Get that picture. Our boasting is not to be in self. It all goes to Him. Isaiah 42, 8, the Lord says, I will not give my glory to another. The Lord does not share His glory. Okay, the spiritual result of all that Paul has been saying is that once you are united in Christ, you will have the, the means to have the wisdom of God to live as God wants you to live. According to righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Now, a practical result. Remember the context. What is the practical result here? These people were a divided church. These were Christians in conflict. These were Christians who divided up over the silliest of things and made them big deals. They had elevated themselves instead of elevating God. So in view of all that the Lord is saying here through the Apostle Paul, we are then to view ourselves as nothing in him and he everything in us. In view of the fact of the wisdom of the world is foolishness, we are to turn to the true wisdom that is found in God. Therefore, how ridiculous it is for Christians to be in conflict over things that do not matter. That's his context. That's what he's saying. And when he comes to the end of this chapter that brings it all together, he says this, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Not in ourselves, not in our intellect, not in our, our, our champions of the faith even. Our boast belongs totally and completely in the Lord. God is interested and has chosen people we would have never chosen. That he might receive the glory that only he deserves. How dare we, Paul is saying, divide up what Christ has done. How dare we tarnish the marvelous work that the Lord has done. Let us never be people who remain in conflict. Conflict's part of life, by the way. Notice that? But never let us be people that stay in conflict and divisive with one another. Because the Lord, to the Lord belongs the glory, not to us and our systems. So he brings it all together, having talked about this, really, I think, profound section of Scripture that's often ignored 
And he brings it all together and says, here's the final word. May your life be lived in such a way that Jesus Christ in all of his wisdom and all of his power and all of his glory is lifted up and magnified in the lives of his people. What a great passage, huh? I've loved it. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you now for this great passage of scripture. A passage, I think, that is often just run through quickly and not noticed, and yet so deeply powerful and profound for our lives. Lord, I pray that all of us walk away today realizing the greatness of yourself and boasting not in our wisdom, our strength, our ways, our convictions, but boasting in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.